Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Let's open our Bibles together to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, verses 37 through 47 is our text today. And we're in a series on church membership. Specifically, we're walking through five articles of our church covenant. I began with a sermon on love, which is one of the most important, if not the most important article in our church covenant. Really, all the nine other articles are related to that one. How are we to express that love in different ways? And Brother Scott taught us very well on we do that through good stewardship. And then Brother Tony last Sunday through our service for the Lord's glory to one another. And so this morning we're going to talk about the article on fellowship. Now most churches have two statements or two pieces of literature that help to guide their faith and practice. One of those is your doctrinal statement. Ours is the Baptist faith and message of 2000, which states very clearly what we believe the Bible has to say of certain key fundamental doctrines and what it means to be a Baptist. And your church covenant is how we behave as a result of those beliefs. And so we're talking about our church covenant, which we revised here three years ago and pledged together to emphasize it more than we have in the past because we want genuine, real, meaningful membership here, don't we? And that begins with a regenerate church body. That is, when someone comes down the aisle and says, I want to be a member of your church, we must do due diligence to ask the right questions and listen carefully to see if, as best as we can discern, though we're not God, if this person is genuinely born again. And then having welcomed them into the fellowship, either by transfer of letter from another church or through believer's baptism, then we express to them in our church membership class, which by the way is just concluding upstairs. We had 13 in there this morning. And last night we had a historic moment in our church is that we had the first ever church membership class in the Chinese language. And Brother Ken, our Chinese pastor, led that and had a number of Chinese brethren who will be presented as members of our church uh, here in the next business meeting. So we thank the Lord and we are committed to uh, meaningful church membership. Not because we think that's cool, because we think it's biblical. And so let's look at our text today. Acts chapter 2, verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. And so those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done among the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. 
And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Well, I said the title of the message today is fellowship. That English word fellowship has a variety of ways it can be used in our language, all with a little different nuance of meaning. It can be used as a noun and often is in church settings. In fact, some churches, some congregations refer to their body as a fellowship. I have a friend who pastors Christ Fellowship. That's a perfectly sound and reasonable way to use the word. But it can also be used as a verb and we Baptists are very good at this. We'll say we need a fellowship and that usually has implications of food and because you have to have a room in which to fellowship in, we have uh, an adjective called a fellowship hall, right? And so you can see my meaning. We use the word in a variety of ways. But you likely know that the Bible in the New Testament specifically was written not in English, but in Greek. And the Greek word that he translates here as fellowship is koinonia. It simply means sharing or together. Now, my introduction to this word, first time I ever heard it, was in my freshman year of college in the men's dormitory. Uh, I was a 17-year-old, very immature freshman, and right across the hall from me on the second floor of the men's dorm was a man who was 23 years old and a fifth-year senior. He was also the starting third baseman on the baseball team, and I looked up to him very much. And I thought he hadn't paid much attention to me, but... Uh, towards uh, the beginning of the semester, one day he knocked on my door and said, Sanders, come across the hall and sit down on the Koinonia bench. Now, Kevin had been there so long, they had given him a private room. The rest of us had to have a roommate, two bunk beds in there, and, and in place of his second bed, he had placed a little couch, and he called it the Koinonia bench. And he took it upon himself as a more mature Christian to disciple young men like me. And for that next two years, almost every evening, I sat on the Koinonia bench and Kevin Murray discipled me. I thank the Lord for Kevin many times. Now, um, Koinonia, though, means more than sitting in a dorm room together, obviously. And so let, let's talk about what it, what it means. Here in Acts, we have Dr. Luke's account of the daily activities of the first century church following the day of Pentecost. Remember, Jewish people had come from all over the world to celebrate this great religious festival there in the holy city of Jerusalem. Jesus had ascended into heaven from the Mount of Olives. He had sent his disciples back to Jerusalem to await the coming of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit descended in power and empowered these men to preach the gospel in a way they never had heard before. In a miraculous way, Peter preached and people heard it in their own language even though they came from all over the world. And his message was very clear. His message was, you are guilty sinners. In fact, he accused them of killing their Messiah, which they were guilty of. Peter didn't give an altar call. He didn't say, well, you need to repent of this. Before the sermon was over, they rushed forward and said, what shall we do? They were into such great conviction. They tore their clothes in grief and agony and said, what shall we do? And Peter counseled them to repent and be baptized. And 3,000 of them did. And that was the birthday of the church. One day, 3,000 people. That tells me a couple of things. One is God does some amazing things, doesn't he? Two, the church kept records. They knew who was in and who was out. And unfortunately, in the modern evangelical church, 
church membership roles are out of date and passe. And so it's very difficult to hold anyone accountable, especially as they transfer easily from one church to the other. Um, but we have a church role here. And you're either on it or you aren't. And it's not because we're trying to keep people out. It's because we believe that one day we'll give an account to God for how we serve his church. And we need to know who we're giving account for. But their lives changed after that day. Now they had come for a short visit, but many of them stayed. They had to have a place to live. And so they had to move in together and they had to eat. And, and so how are you going to take care of these kind of people and um, train them up to get them ready to be sent out from where they came to start churches? Well, it, it was through fellowship. It was through an idea that we belong together and that we owe certain things to one another. But it began with a clear statement of common faith in Christ. I've often said, I have more in common with a person in deepest, darkest Africa who's never heard the English language, who loves Jesus, than I do with the person across the street in my neighborhood who knows him not. Now, that's hard for people who are not Christians to believe, but we have a shared and a common faith that puts us together in a common bond that transcends human culture and language. I saw this firsthand as I traveled internationally some years ago. I was leading a team in Eastern Europe, and uh, we were doing some vacation Bible schools, and it, it got to be Sunday, and we had access to a beautiful tour bus there for our group of 30 or 40 Americans. And our tour guide, who was a local person there, said, what do you want to do today? You want to go shopping? Uh, do you want to relax? Want to go see the sights? What do you want to do? I said, well, it's Sunday, and we're Baptists. We want to go to church. And I said, is there a Baptist church in this city? He says, well, there is, but we can't just show up. They don't know us. And I said, you're not Baptist, are you? And he said, no, I'm not. I said, let's, let's go. And so we pull up to this little Baptist church. Never shall I forget it. The pastor saw us coming up the drive. And he comes out and greeted me very warmly. And I told him that we were Christians, we were Baptists, and we were from Texas. And he said, come on in. And they showed us right to the best seats in the auditorium. In fact, as the service started, he gave us a warm welcome and introduction and asked if we would come up and sing some hymns in English, which we did. And then he gave me an opportunity to, to say hi to the people. And then the pastor's son, who had been ordained just days earlier, got up and preached one of the finest sermons on salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, from the book of Ephesians that I have ever heard. And they took care of us all afternoon and fed us lunch. And we left that day friends. Why? Because we spoke the same language? No, we didn't. Because we dressed just alike? No, we didn't. Because we liked the same things? No, we didn't. It was because of our shared and common faith in Jesus Christ. And that is the basis of all Christian fellowship. Ephesians 4, 5 says, One Lord one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. We will never find unity in the culture, in hobbies, or in our social status. Now there is movement in our own world to have affinity churches. That is, people go to the church where people like the same things, whether it's to ride horses or motorcycles or, or whatever. And look, if, if a church loves Jesus, I'm for them, okay? Don't hear me putting those things down. But I think we have to be very careful about that because we must not be unified 
in the name of Christ around anything other than the gospel. It's not what we like because what we like changes. I don't like the same things I did 20 years ago, do you? My interests change and differ, and that's true of all of us. So if we build our churches around things we all like, then it's subject to fail. So what doesn't fail is the gospel, the Bible, the Lord, the same yesterday, today, and forever, immutable. That's why Jude, the brother of the Lord Jesus, speaking to the first century church, said earnestly, that is with great effort, earnestly contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. The faith is the content of the gospel. Everything the Bible teaches us about God's eternal plan of redemption is what we're to coalesce around. The Bible, my friends, is our curriculum. In fact, he says in verse 42 of that first century church, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. That's what we must devote ourselves to. Now, this is the time of year in the summer where people are moving from one city to another. We always say goodbye in the summer to some very wonderful families here who get transferred to other cities and jobs. And we welcome new families who are transferring in from other cities. But almost weekly, I get a call from a family who's left our church to go to another city. And they say, Pastor, we're having trouble finding a church. Can you recommend a church in Atlanta or Memphis or Lubbock or wherever they're moved to? And I said, you know what? I, I can't, but I can give you some advice. Uh, go to the sporting goods store and buy yourself a good stopwatch. And next Sunday when you're visiting a church, right as the pastor takes the three steps to go to the platform to preach, hit the go button and time how long it takes him to say, open your Bibles. And if it's more than a few seconds, I would not rate that church very high because otherwise we're just giving our own opinions, right? What we do here is not based on human opinion, but on the very word of God. The first century church had a great advantage over us. They had the apostles living and breathing and walking among them who were receiving direct revelation from God, the Holy Spirit, but were also teaching all the things that Christ had just recently taught them. And yet we are teaching those same truths here, aren't we? Which have been written down and preserved in Holy Scripture. And we have a great advantage over many people in that we have numerous copies in our own native language of all 66 books of the closed canon of Scripture. And we have the freedom to come here week by week. You have the freedom in your home to read your Bible anytime you want to. And we are to be just as devoted to the apostles' teaching as they were in the first century church. So it began with a shared faith in Christ and a belief in His Word. Secondly, it expressed itself, that is their fellowship, through a shared symbol. What is that symbol? Well, he says, they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship and the breaking of bread. This speaks undoubtedly of the Lord's Supper. Remember that Jesus, before he was arrested, brought his inner circle of disciples into that upper room and instituted in their presence what we know as the Lord's Supper. What is the meaning of the Supper? It's a symbol of the high cost of our sin and the great love with which he loved us. The bread represents his body, which was bruised and broken in our place on the cross, and the juice representing his blood, which was poured out as remission for our sins. And so in the Lord's Supper, we are reminded of our fellowship together, 
our communion with one another, we call it. Now, we had Lord's Supper here a few weeks ago, and uh, one of the men in our church stopped me outside of the building here, and I knew before he asked what he was going to ask, because I get it every time we take the Lord's Supper. Pastor, how often should we take the Lord's Supper? Well, he came from a tradition that took it every week, and I think that's perfectly fine. Um, the Bible doesn't prescribe how often. It just says, as oft as you do it, do it in remembrance of me. That is, the meaning of it is, is the most important thing, that we recognize that we are all looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. So Christian fellowship, though, is much more than a symbol. If it's being done correctly, it's very tangible. And one of the ways that we tangibly fellowship with one another in the context of the local church is our third point, which is shared burdens, a sense of shared burdens. Galatians 6.2 says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. That is, Christ commands us to share one another's burdens. Well, how do we do that, practically speaking? Well, I think there's at least three ways. One is the ministry of presence. I saw it here yesterday, as we often do yesterday. Saturday afternoon, we had a funeral service here of one of our dear saints, 93-year-old gentleman, Korean War veteran, wonderful brother. And his Sunday school class turned out in great numbers to love on that widow to feed the family lunch, and to just be here to offer support, to help bear that burden. It's not complicated many times to fulfill this commandment. You just have to be willing. There's the ministry of time. I think that is the commodity that is most precious to people in our culture today. It used to be money, but now it's time because we're so busy and our schedules are so full, we would much rather write a check than spend an hour with someone. We have to be very careful about that because being a Christian is a commitment of presence and time in a person's time of trouble. Then there's the ministry of benevolence. Now we're getting really tangible, right? Uh, we have to be careful because when people come to us who are brothers and sisters with a burden or a need that is physical or fiscal, our tendency is to say, let's pray about that. Pat him on the back and say, I believe the Lord's going to answer your prayer. Well, James, the brother, another brother of Jesus, wrote in his epistle, in chapter 2, verse 15, if a brother or sister is naked and destitute of food, and you say to them, depart and be warmed and filled, <laughs> what good is that? Right? You, you have 40 bucks in your pocket and Christian brother comes to you and his gas tank's nearly empty and he doesn't have any way to get to work and you say, let's pray about God filling your gas tank. And you pat him on the back and say, I believe the Lord's going to fill your gas tank. Bye. You have not really prayed because quite often we are the answer to our own prayers in the context of the local church. So presence, time, money are, are very tangible ways in which we fulfill the law of Christ. Now, uh, the primary way, however, that we bear one another's burden is through prayer. I'm not diminishing prayer. I'm all for it. Um, they interceded to God in the first century church on behalf of one another. How do I know? Well, look at verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship to the breaking of bread and what? Prayer. Most important and sacred thing we do for one another is to intercede to God in prayer. Ephesians 6.18, listen to this. 
for all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for who? All the saints. Now the saints aren't some elevated class of Christians in your church. The saints are all the Christians in your church. We owe to one another our earnest prayers to God on their behalf. You say, well, that's fine. What should I pray for? That's a difficult question, isn't it? Uh, I'm going to give you some suggestions. Um, my father-in-law is over here. He is the organist, Jim Hoyer. Um, he and I have different interests, I'll, I'll just tell you. Uh, Jim gets excited about a lady named Diane Gish, who is an organist coming into town. Uh, they'll, they'll go and buy tickets, and he'll be excited all week about going to an organ recital. Um, not so much me, but uh, to each his own, right? I, that reminds me of when I first started pastoring, I was talking to another pastor about prayer meeting. And he said, most of our prayer meetings are organ recitals. I said, what in the world do you mean by that? He said, well, you open the floor up for prayer and somebody prays for their gallbladder, another person prays for their heart, another person prays for their stomach. We just recite our organs to one another. But you know, we shouldn't laugh or diminish that because I've been sick. And I've been in the hospital. And the first thing I want is your prayers. We ought to recite our physical needs to one another. But it ought not stop there. So I'm going to give you four words that start with the letter P that you can pray for one another. Number one, pray for the protection of one another. You've probably noticed we have some men around our building with little radio receivers in their ears. That's our security team. And we have a security team here because we are not naive there are bad people in the world that would seek to do us harm. And we ought to pray for protection. The Bible says you should pray to live a quiet life that is unmolested by others who would seek to do you harm. Pray for one another's protection. Secondly, we ought to pray for our provision. We celebrated the Lord's provision of rain here a few minutes ago. We ought to do more of that because every day is a manifestation of the Lord's provision, isn't it? We start every Monday morning in our staff meeting, asking the Lord's provision. The Lord met our needs, allowed us to pay our bills last week. Got a new week this week. We come empty-handed every Monday morning and say, Lord, provide for us as your people are able. We should pray for perseverance. The Bible says, don't become weary in doing what is right. We believe we're doing what is right in this community by sharing the gospel and holding high the, the word of God. But sometimes it gets tiring, doesn't it? Sometimes we want to quit. And if you feel that way, I can promise you, your neighbor feels that way. And we are to encourage one another on to good works. Pray for perseverance. And then uh, pray that we would all be proactive in evangelism. When Paul was asked how people should pray for him, pray for an open door for the gospel, he said. That I would preach it as I ought to preach it. That when we have the opportunity at a restaurant or at school or at the ball field to speak a good word for Jesus, that we don't waste one moment. So those are four things you can pray for. There are many others, but start there. Because we owe that to one another in the context of the local church. And then let's get very specific. Not only will we share our prayers, we're to share our blessings. Verse 43. And awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles and all who believed were together and had all things in common 
and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. This word awe that fell upon the people is, to my understanding, the reverential fear of God, which the psalmist said is the beginning of wisdom. It also was accompanied in that first century context with signs and wonders. Now be careful here that we don't see this as prescriptive. Um, it's my belief, as I've studied the scriptures, that the sign gifts ended with the death of the apostles. So I'm a cessationist when it comes to that. There are two new churches in our city limits who are not. They have pastors who claim the gift of healing. And without being too sarcastic, I'm going to visit some folks with cancer in the hospital this afternoon. I'd love for them to go with me. Put the hospitals out of business if they have the gift of healing. But I don't believe they do. And that's not to say that God can't heal people. He does, and we pray every day that He would. But I don't have the gift of healing like the apostles did, and I don't believe any other person does as well. God gave those gifts in the first century before we had the closed canon of Scripture to verify and give credence to the truth claims of those speaking in the name of Jesus. Now, the most important thing about these verses, though, is not the signs and wonders. It's what comes next. Verse 44, And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, they were together physically, often, but they shared their lives together and their possessions together. Now, this is not communism, as I've heard some people say. Communism is a political system in which all the resources of a country are supposedly divided equally among the population, though that never seems to happen, does it? This isn't communism. This is people who own private property, but they did not count anything as their own possession, meaning everything belonged to the Lord. And if anyone in the church had a need that you had the ability to meet and the Lord impressed you to do it, you sold that piece of property and you gave it to the church and you met that need. And this was going on. And not to say that everybody was doing it perfectly. There's the story here in the book of Acts of a couple who did it for a wrong motive. They sold a piece of property because they wanted to look good in the community as generous and benevolent, but they held part of the proceeds back and lied about how much they got for the property. And you know what the Lord did? He struck them both dead. Now, the Lord is gracious and long-suffering. It's very rare for Him to strike people dead, but He can and does. And I think He was setting an example there in the first church for all of us to see that He's still God. In fact, Peter said to this couple, look, as long as you had the property and your possessions, it was yours to do with what you want. But don't lie to the Holy Spirit. Now, we are to have the attitude that everything we own is, is the Lord's. And if someone in the church has need of it, they are welcome to it. And that really comes down to um, my fifth and final point. I think this is summarizes what it really means to fellowship. It's you share your life with another person. That is with the church you belong to. Look at verse 46. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now there's a phrase there that's repeated twice. Day by day. I think it's emphasized here for a reason. It was not just an hour or two on the Lord's day that they viewed themselves as part of the same body. 
fact, I read with interest this week an article in our Baptist press that expressed how since COVID started two and a half years ago, the definition of being a devoted church member has evolved or devolved as the case may be. And the article said that they interviewed a lot of Baptists and they asked them how often they met with other Christians at the church. And he said it came down to if someone came to church for an hour a month, they viewed themselves as a devoted member. Friends, I know that's very subjective and people have different schedules and, and I'm not God, but in the first century at least, being a member of a church and devoting yourself to fellowship with the body was a daily thing. He says day by day, not just an hour or two at the end of the week or the beginning of the week. They worshiped together. They broke bread together. And that's not talking about communion. That's talking about vittles as we say in Mississippi. That, that's eating meals together. Now, why would you do that? Well, one, it's enjoyable, but two, it builds unity. Um, I, I think one of the most undertaught and emphasized commandments in the Bible is Christian hospitality. Now, there was a day in which it was emphasized in our churches, but our schedules have become so filled and overly busy that the idea of opening your home to strangers or even people you barely know is, is nearly alien to most of us. A few years ago, my wife and I were talking about this, and, and the Lord's blessed us with a beautiful home to raise our children in, and, and we said, are we using this home for God's glory? And, and so uh, we just committed together to do something very simple. It's not to toot our horn because we, we fail many times. Got the calendar out and said, okay, once a month, we're going to invite a family into our home to have a meal. Now, that, that, that's not because we, we're trying to earn points in heaven. It's because hospitality is commanded in the Bible. And it's a way of expressing that we don't own this home. It's the Lord's. He can use it any way he, he chooses. Now, now, be careful here if, if you want to commit to something like this because the temptation is going to be to invite your best friends or to invite the family in the church who are the best cooks because you expect an invitation in return back to their house one day. Or if you're a businessman or woman, the temptation is to invite people that can promote your career or your business. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about welcoming into your home traveling preachers, missionaries, widow women, widowers in the church, people who have no opportunity to reciprocate in any way and you do it because it's the right thing to do and for the Lord's glory. That builds fellowship, the breaking of bread day to day, living life together. And you know what? If you're doing it in the right way, you're not going to be miserable. He said they receive their food with glad and generous hearts. What does the Bible say? It is more blessed to what? Give than to receive. That is the truth. If you've ever learn to do this, you know you get much more joy out of blessing other people than to being the beneficiary of, of others' blessings. So, um, really comes down to this. Well, what does it mean to fellowship? I think it's best fulfilled in the Bible verse that says, rejoice with those who are rejoicing and weep with those who are weeping. That is, you're so involved in one another's lives that you know what's going on. 
and, and, and let me say something a little sharp here. Some of us in this room purposely don't become involved in other people's lives. We, we like coming into this room and hearing the beautiful music and maybe we're encouraged by the reading and teaching of the word, but we kind of slip out a little bit early so we don't have to talk to people, come a little bit late so we don't have to interact with people. We never get involved in a small group Sunday school class because that would be too personal. And listen, I get it. I'm an introvert. I, I don't need a lot of social interaction, much to my wife's chagrin. I like my living room. I like my study. I like my books. The Bible says we need one another. In fact, I believe it is ingrained in our very DNA as human beings. When God created the first man, Adam, you know one of the first things he said about Adam? It's not good for him to be alone. So he created a woman to be his helper and life mate and companion because he knows that he created us for fellowship and togetherness. And like that, when we're born again, the Lord doesn't leave us alone out in the world. He doesn't say, I hope you do okay. He wants us to submit ourselves to a local body of believers and grow with them and express our unique spiritual gifts in that context and be served in that context. I sometimes hear people say, I met a guy at a grocery store once here in Keller. And as we were waiting to check out, uh, we were talking about what we did. And I told him I was a pastor. And he says, well, I'm a Christian, but I don't go to church. I said, what, what do you do? He says, well, I, every Sunday morning I get up and I read my Bible and I pray. And, but I don't need a church to be a Christian. And I said, brother, do you know what the Bible says what a, a church is? For one, it says it's a family. Can you imagine being a family but never interacting with your family members? Well, it gets even worse. Another metaphor the Bible uses of a church is a body. In fact, it calls us all different component parts of the body. Some are eyes and some are hands, some are feet. And do you know that a severed hand or foot is not fulfilling its function on the body, is it? In fact, not to be gross, if you're walking down the sidewalk and you see a hand laying there disembodied, it's grotesque. You're likely to avoid it. The church is to be attractive. Did you notice that as we were reading these verses? As the lost and dying world observed the love these Christians had for one another and how they enjoyed one another's company, how they were growing together, how they met each other's physical needs, the church began to grow. People were attracted to that. But when a church is isolationist, where they don't really do life together, where there's a minimum amount of conviction and commitment to it, it's not attractive at all. In fact, it turns a lot of people off. And they say like that man I met in the grocery store, I don't want anything to do with the church. Friends, we are here to glorify the Lord Jesus in Keller, Texas, right? And the Bible says they will know us by our love one for another. And the greatest manifestation of our love for one another is seen in the concept of Christian fellowship. Well, let's make a little application in the two minutes we have left. If you're a Christian here and you don't belong to a church, you ought to. And I'm never going to put any pressure on anyone to join this church. And I'm not under any 
illusion that we're the only church in town. There are many churches who preach the gospel, and, and I'm for every one of them. But I'd recommend this church. I've been here 22 years, and uh, this church loves each other. They love the Word. We're far from perfect, as I told the new members class this morning. I know we're far from perfect because I'm the pastor. And if it was perfect before I got here, I would have ruined it long ago. We're not perfect, but we want to be. We want to be like Jesus. We want to grow. And we want to be attractive to a lost and dying world. And that means treating one another like the first century church treated one another. So if you're not a member of a church, but you're a Christian, join a church. If you're a member of First Baptist Keller, would you join me in recommitting your life starting today to obeying these commandments? These are commandments, not suggestions. To truly living life together with the members of this church. And as we do that, as we start a new church year next Sunday, the 21st, uh, we're going to see what we're praying for, which is a year of growth, spiritually, numerically, and in every other way. Let's pray together and ask the Lord's blessing. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for your word. And it's been a convicting word to my heart today. And, and Lord, my nature is, um, I want to be alone a lot of the time. And, and Father, it's not good for man to be alone. It's certainly not good for a church member to be alone. We need fellowship. In fact, it's one of the things that we've identified in our church covenant that we owe to one another. So, Father, help us to fulfill those obligations in the year ahead. Maybe it's just by taking someone to lunch or coffee and spending time with them as Kevin Murray did to me. Maybe it's providing for a financial need that we know about anonymously without drawing attention to ourselves. Maybe it's uh, just spending time with a person in a nursing home that you know needs a visit. Father, we recognize that you own everything, we own nothing. Even our very days are numbered. And so, Lord, we have uh, submitted ourselves in the commitment and the covenant of First Baptist Keller. So, Lord, we want to use those commitments to glorify Jesus as much as we can. Help us to do that in this new church year ahead. And whatever good that happens in and through us, we'll pledge to give all the glory to Jesus. In whose name I pray. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.